Section six of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Joaquin and Juniata. Joaquin Miller has just published a new book called The Shadows of Shasta. It is based on the Hiawatha Blue Juniata romance, which the average poet seems competent to yank loose from the history of the sore-eyed savage at all times. Whenever a deadbeat poet strikes bedrock and don't have shekels enough to buy a bowl of soup, he writes an inspired ode to the unfettered horse-thief of the West. It is all right so far as we know. If the poet will wear out the smoke-tanned child of the forest writing poetry about him, and then if the child of the forest will rise up in his death struggle and mash the never-dying soul out of the white-livered poet, everything will be okay and we will pay the funeral expenses. If it could be so arranged that the poet and the bright Alpharita bug-eater and the bilious wild-eyed bard of the backwoods could be shut up in a corral for six weeks together, with nothing to eat but each other, it would be a big thing for humanity. We said once that we wouldn't dictate to this administration, but let it flicker along alone. We just throw out the above as a suggestion, however, hoping that it will not be ignored. Some Vague Thoughts Spring, gentle, touchful, tuneful, breezeful, soothful spring, is here. It has not been here more than twenty minutes, and my arctic stand where I can reach them in case it should change its mind. The bobolink sits on the basswood vines, and the thrush in the gooseberry tree is as melodious as a hired man. The robin is building his nest, or rather her nest, I should say, perhaps, in the boughs of the old willow that was last year busted by thunder. I beg your pardon, by lightning, I should say. The speckled calf dines teat a teat with his mother, and strawberries are like the bald-headed man's brow. They come high, but we can't get along without them. I never was more tickled to meet gentle spring than I am now. It stirs up my drug-soaked remains and warms the genial current of life considerably. I frolicked around in the grass this afternoon and filled my pockets full of one-thousand-legged worms and the little mementos of the season. The little harefoot boy now comes forth and walks with a cautious tread at first, like a blind horse but toward the golden autumn the back of his feet will look like a warty toad, and there will be big cracks in them, and one toe will be wrapped up in part of a bed-quilt, and he will show it with pride to crowded houses. Last night I lay awake for several hours thinking about Mr. Sherrod, and how long we had been separated, and I was wondering how many weary days would have to elapse before we could again look into each other's eyes and— hold each other by the hand, when the loud and violent concussion of a revolver shot near West Main Street and Cascade Avenue rent the sable robe of night. I rose and lit the gas to see if I had been hit. Then I examined my pockets to see if I had been robbed of my lead pencil and seasoned pass. I found that I had not. This morning I learned that a young doctor, who had been watching his own house from a distance during the evening, had discovered that, taking advantage of the husband's absence, a blonde dry-goods clerk had called to see the crooked but lonely wife. The doctor waited until the young man had been in the house long enough to get pretty well acquainted, 
and then he went in himself to see that the youth was making himself perfectly comfortable. There was a wild dash toward the window, made by a blond man with his pantaloons in his hand, the spatter of a bullet in the wall over the young man's head, and then all was still for a moment, save the low sob of a woman with her head covered up by the bedclothes. Then the two men clinched, and the doctor injected the barrel of a thirty-two self-cocker up the bridge of the young man's nose, knocked him under the washstand, yanked him out by the hem of his garment and jarred him into the coal bucket, kicked him up on a corner bracket, and then swept the quivering ruins into the street with a stub broom. He then lit the chandelier and told his sobbing wife that she wasn't just the temperament for him, and he was afraid that their paths might diverge. He didn't care much for company and society, while she seemed to yearn for such things constantly. He came right out and admitted that he was of a nervous temperament and quick-tempered. He loved her, but he had such an irritable, fiery disposition that he guessed he would have to excuse her. So he escorted her out of the gate and told her where the best hotel was, came in, drove out the cat, blew out the light, and retired. Some men seem almost like brutes in their treatment of their wives. They come home at some eccentric hour of the night, and because they have to sleep on the lounge, they get mad and try to shoot holes in the lumberkins, and look at their wives in a harsh, rude tone of voice. I tell you, it's tough. The Humorist "'You are a humorist, are you not?' queried a long-billed pelican addressing a thoughtful mental athlete on the Milwaukee and St. Paul Road the other day. "'Yes, sir,' said the sorrowful man, brushing away a tear. "'I am a humorist. I am not very much so, but still I can see that I am drifting that way. And yet I was once joyous and happy as you are. Only a few years ago, before I was exposed to this malady, I was as blithe as a speckled yearling, and wrecked not of aught, nor anything else either.' Now my whole life is blasted. I do not dare to eat pie or preserves, and no one tells funny stories when I am near. They regard me as a professional, and when I get in sight, the scrub nine close up and wait for me to entertain the crowd and waddle around the ring. What do you mean by that? murmured the purple-nosed interrogation point. Mean? Why, I mean that whether I'm drawing a salary or not, I'm expected to be the life of the party. I don't want to be the life of the party. I want to let someone else be the life of the party. I want to get up the reputation of being as cross as a bear with a sore head. I want people to watch their children for fear I'll swallow them. I want to take my low-cut evening dress smile and put it in the bureau drawer and tell the world I've got a cancer in my stomach and the heaves and hypochondria, and a malignant case of leprosy. Do you mean to say that you do not feel facetious all the time, and that you get weary of being a numerist? Yes, hungry interlocutor, yes, lowbrow student, yes. I am not always tickled. Did you ever have a large, angry, and abnormally protuberant boil somewhere on your person, where it seemed to be in the way? Did you ever have such a boil as a traveling companion, 
and then get introduced to people as an humorist. You have not? Well, then, you do not know all there is of suffering in this sorrow-streaked world. When wealthy people die, why don't they endow a cast-iron castle with a drawbridge to it and call it the humorist's retreat? Why don't they do something good with their money instead of fooling it away on those who are comparatively happy? But how did you come to get to be a numerist? Well, I don't know. I blame my parents some. They might have prevented it if they'd taken it in time, but they didn't. They let it run on until it got established, and now it is no use to go to the hot springs or to the mountains, or have an operation performed. You let a man get the name of being a numerist, and he doesn't dare to register at the hotels, and he has to travel anonymously and mark his clothes with his wife's name, or the public will lynch him if he doesn't say something humorous. "'Where is your boy tonight?' continued the gloomy humorist. "'Do you know where he is? Is he at home under your watchful eye, or is he away somewhere nailing the handles on his first little joke?' Parent, beware. Teach your boy to beware. Watch him night and day, or all at once, when he is beyond your jurisdiction. He will grow pale. He will have a faraway look in his eye, and the bright, rosy lad will have become the flat-chested, joyless humorist. It's hard to speak unkindly of our parents, but mingled with my own remorse I shall always murmur to myself and ask over and over, why did not my parents rescue me while they could? Why did they allow my chubby little feet to waddle down to the dangerous ground on which the sad-eyed humorist must forever stand? Partner, do not forget what I have said today. Whether your child be a son or daughter, it matters not. Discourage the first sign of approaching humor. It is easier to bust the backbone of the first little tender jokelet that sticks its head through the virgin soil than it is to allow the slimy folds of your son's humorous lecture to be wrapped about you and to bring your gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. My Cabinet I've made a small collection of wild western things during the past seven years, and I've put them together, hoping some day, when I get feeble, to travel with the aggregation and erect a large monument of kopecks for my executors, administrators, and assigns forever. Beginning with the skull of old high-low Jack in the game, a Sioux Brave, the collection takes in my wonderful bird known as the Walk Up the Creek and another rara avis, with carnivorous bill and web feet, which has astonished everyone except the taxidermist and myself. An old grizzly bear hunter, who has plowed corn all his life and don't know a coyote from a maverick steer, looked at it last fall and pronounced it a kingfisher, said he had killed one like it a year ago. Then I knew he was a pilgrim and a stranger, and that he had bought his buckskin coat and bead-trimmed moccasins at Niagara Falls, for the bird is constructed of an eagle's head, a canvas back, duck's bust and feet, with the balance, sage hen and baled hay. Last fall, I desired to add to my rare collection a large hornet's nest. I had an embalmed tarantula and her porcelain-lined nest, and I desired to add to these a gray and airy home of the hornet.
I procured one of the large size after cold weather and hung it in my cabinet by a string. I forgot about it until this spring. When warm weather came, something reminded me of it. I think it was a hornet. He jogged my memory in some way and called my attention to it. Memory is not located where I thought it was. It seemed as though whenever he touched me he awakened a memory, a warm memory with a red place all around it. Then some more hornets came and began to rake up old personalities. I remember that one of them lit on my upper lip. He thought it was a rosebud. When he went away, it looked like a gladiola bulb. I wrapped a wet sheet around it to take out the warmth and reduce the swelling so that I could go through the folding doors and tell my wife about it. Hornets lit all over me and walked around on my person. I did not dare to scrape them off because they are so sensitive. You have to be very guarded in your conduct toward a hornet. I remember once, while I was watching the busy little hornet gathering honey and June bugs from the bosom of a rose, years ago, I stirred him up with a club, more as a practical joke than anything else, and he came and lit in my sunny hair. That was when I wore my own hair, and he walked around through my gleaming tresses quite a while, making tracks as large as a watermelon all over my head. If he hadn't run out of tracks, my head would have looked like a load of summer squashes. I remember I had to thump my head against the smokehouse in order to smash him, and I had to comb him out with a fine comb and wear a waste paper basket two weeks for a hat. Uh, much has been said of the hornet, but he has an odd, quaint way, after all, that is forever new. End of Section 6